Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland. And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We're back this week, and we're finishing up the prequel to the Hunger Games trilogy today, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, and we've already covered the original trilogy, so we'll be starting our next series next week. And as we like to tell you every single week, for anyone who happens to be new to our show, we're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network. We're best friends, and we read and reread YA books from our childhood and adolescence and then share these books with each other. We've been alternating generally between series that one of us has read before and the other hasn't, so you get to hear the perspective of a rereader and the perspective of a new reader. And for The Hunger Games, we both had read the original trilogy, but Charles is new to the prequel, so he's going to go ahead and give us a summary of the second half of the reading. And next week, we're going to be moving on to a series that Charles has started before, so I'll be back on summary duty next week. Yes, wrapping up my turn for summary duty for a while. So Coriolanus and Lucy Gray managed to win the games with a mixture of poison and other cheating on Coriolanus's part. Right as he's about to celebrate, oh my goodness, to celebrate, Snow is found out and he's sent to be a peacekeeper in District 12 by Dean Highbottom. Being a peacekeeper is pretty terrible, but he does get some time with Lucy Gray. However, he kills someone and with the murder weapon out there, he's scared for his life and his reputation. He and Lucy Gray decide to run away, but he finds the murder weapon, so instead he decides to dispose of Lucy Gray and go to officer training. However, he's intercepted, and it turns out that Dr. Gall only sent him to the districts to learn more, and now he will go to university and inherit all of the plinth money. And I could keep going, but I think it's better that we just go into the plot, because I'll get too bonked down, as per usual. And just my quick first impression of the reading was that I really just want to commend Suzanne Collins' writing. I thought that she wrote Coriolanus's Descent into Evil well. Like, she wrote it really well and believable. So, but I think we'll probably talk about that a little more, so I won't go too far into that. What about your impression, Asia? Yeah, I also definitely enjoyed how Collins wrote his Descent into Evil and just how kind of like every step of the way he was making the wrong choice and just justifying it in his mind and almost to the point where like he couldn't do any wrong and as much as I really really love this book and it was really nice to reread it especially after reading the trilogy and kind of really enjoying all of the hints and foreshadowing towards the trilogy I do kind of understand why some people might not have liked this prequel just because it is pretty disturbing to you know read from like an antagonist perspective especially one where like he goes from kind of essentially being like a privileged but like has morals kind of person to just totally doesn't care about anyone else besides himself so I can see why people might not have enjoyed it but I do think it was very well written and We'll obviously talk about it a lot today. Totally. Yeah, I think that we can definitely talk about that disturbing nature of it. So diving in, we're still at the games, and Coriolanus cheats once again by dropping Lucy Gray's handkerchief into the snake tank because he finds out that Dr. Gall is going to put it into the arena, so then the snakes don't attack her in the arena. And then with other rat poison, she kills more tributes, and then she wins. So she's the only other victor from District 12 besides Hamish, Katniss, and Peeta. And that is something that's mentioned in the first Hunger Games book. Like They say that when Katniss and Peeta get drawn, they're like, oh, the only people who've ever won is Hamish, and they're like somebody else like from way in the past. So I thought that was really like, I remember when I, after reading the prequel for the first time, reading Hunger Games, I was like, oh my gosh, like, it's all connected. Like, I don't know. I just, especially since when I read this, like, again, I had only really read The Hunger Games once. So, like, I didn't remember every single little detail like that. So, I just thought that was really nice. Totally. So, but before we move on to the next thing in the plot, I did want to mention that Coriolanus goes to the plinths after saving Sejanus in the arena. And he's just, he, like, he goes over to the plinths because he's expecting them to, like, pay him some money for saving Sejanus, 
And it's like a weird, surreal chapter to read because he spends the whole time looking down on them. He's like, they're so district. They're so poverty. They're so detestable. But also like, I want to fleece them of all their money. And I was like, I mean, it's just proving his sort of tendency to justify his bad behavior. And I also pulled a quote or some quotes of his proprietary language towards Lucy Gray. As we said, he really thinks of her as his property, not as another like human that he could like be in love with. And when he thinks that she might win, he's like, he says he got to keep her and she was entirely and unequivocally his. So it's definitely more proprietary than romantic. For sure. And I also wanted to mention his thoughts on his final paper for Dr. Gall, which he turns into her on his last day. And so obviously he wins, Lucy Gray wins the Hunger Games, but Dean Highbottom figures out that he did cheat and he has all of this evidence with like DNA evidence against him. And so basically he gives Coriolanus this ultimatum that he can either be expelled from the academy and obviously that'll put a lot of disgrace on his family or he can sign up and serve his country as a peacekeeper and Coriolanus obviously can't take the shame of expulsion and the humiliation of that so he decides to become a peacekeeper and he actually chooses to go to district 12 and on his way to 12 right before he leaves he goes to the citadel to try to give his final paper to Dr. Gall which is the one that was supposed to be on chaos control and and contract the social contract and basically in this paper he talks about how the capital is the only entity capable of enforcing this social contract and he just kind of states that like it's a fact and i just for this paper that's supposed to be explaining all these things like he doesn't give a reason as to you know why is the capital the only entity capable of controlling it like what who put the capital in charge? Like, why are they above everyone else? Like, are they of a higher species? Like, it's just like, it's kind of like this thing that he says, like states as fact, where again, it's a flaw in his logic that it's like, you have no, there's no reason why the capital should be above the districts. Totally. Yeah. He, it's, it's his elitist capital mindset that there's nothing better than the capital. And then, so he's in 12, and Sejanus comes, because Sejanus thinks that being a peacekeeper will be noble, and he tells Coriolanus that they can still apply to be officers, and then they get to see Lucy Gray, which does make Coriolanus happy, but they pretty quickly witness a hanging, and Sejanus is like, oh my goodness, this is so terrible. And as much as I like Sejanus, I was like, dude, what did you expect being a peacekeeper would be like? Like, I don't agree with Coriolanus on his judgments of Sejanus, but I was like, this is one of those moments where I was like, Sejanus, what did you expect being a peacekeeper would be like? Yeah, he's, I mean, he's still a kid and like he's just lost and he just was trying to get out of the capital. So I definitely feel bad for him, but definitely not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> but jumping a tad ahead, we see that Sejanus is actually getting involved with the rebels and he's hiding thousands of dollars in cash for who knows what. And we find this all out because Coriolanus and Sejanus go visit the Covey in the seam. And this is where we also find out that Lucy Lucy Gray is actually the one who wrote the Hanging Tree song. So we had known that like, oh, this song comes up and it was inspired by the hanging they all saw of Arlo. And when he called out to Lil, but we hadn't known that Lucy Gray is actually the person who writes the song that becomes this iconic thing in Mockingjay. Yeah, that was a, this is a good moment to actually mention that that's not something I saw coming. So I did see him winning the Hunger Games um, because Asia asked me to like keep track of like any plot twists that I saw coming. I did see him winning the Hunger Games or Lucy Gray winning them. I didn't see him going to be a peacekeeper. That was a big whoop for me. And I didn't see her writing the song. I had a feeling she would actually, she would sing it at some point, but I didn't actually know that she'd be the one who wrote it. Also, the Deep in the Meadow song that Katniss sings to Rue, Lucy Gray sings that at the Hob, I believe. And, um, like, we don't know if she necessarily wrote that one, but she sings that one. And um, I didn't, yeah, I just didn't necessarily see those songs coming up so 
like as specifically. But speaking of the Hob, actually, <laughs> this is one of those great hints that like ties back to the original trilogy. And it's just one of those like quick sentences. When they go visit the Hob the first time, Coriolanus is like, this whole place is covered in coal dust. It would go up in a flash. And I was like, oh, funny, that's exactly what's going to happen in, I believe it goes up in Catching Fire. But, um. Yeah, at the end when they, well, when they destroy, or it goes up uh, when the new people When the new regiment comes in, yeah. They burn it down. But, I mean, it lasts all those years, so it didn't go up quite so soon. Well, the peacekeepers needed their gin. Yep. But so now we're kind of we get this like period in which Coriolanus and Lucy Gray are just in love. And it's just like it's clearly like not really love because like we said, Snow sees her more as property. And he even like has a line where he says that, you know, it was kind of better to have it was better to have Lucy Gray locked up in the Capitol where he could keep an eye on her because now obviously he's the one who's almost more of like a prisoner because the peacekeepers can only go out on the weekends and they also like eventually they can only go out with a buddy. So like he can't just free roam wherever he wants, whereas Lucy Gray is just a member of District 12. She can go and come and go as she pleases. She can do whatever she wants. And obviously that bothers him a lot. And I don't know, I think reading this for the first time when I read it, like obviously I'm romantic. So like, I think I enjoyed it a little more, but it still was like, you knew it wasn't going to work out because you know that this is President Snow and he obviously does not end up with Lucy Gray. And, but rereading it, it was just like, I don't know. It made me really uncomfortable because he just like, you're reading it, you're like, this isn't love, and, like, it's just, like, very manipulative, and, like, he... I mean, he literally says it would be better if she was in the monkey cage at the zoo, which so that he would know where she is at all times. Like, it's not exactly love that he feels that possessive over her. Yeah. And, like, like perfect example. So they go see her singing at the hob, and he's like, oh, my God, she's so beautiful. And then he's like... He gets jealous when he sees that she's so beautiful because he's like, in this light, everyone will think she's attractive. And like, I can't have that because she belongs to me. So it's definitely, it goes to his dehumanization of the districts that he just doesn't think that people from the districts are worth the same thing as people from the capital. So he assumes that the love or like that love goes, I don't want to say goes in one direction because he definitely feels something for her. But, like, that she should just be so happy to be around him because he's capital. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely sees himself as above her. And then we also get where, so they have the peacekeepers are trying to gather up the Jabberjays, which the Jabberjays are the original mutations that they made that the capital made to spy on the rebels so those are just birds they literally record human conversations and then they can repeat them back and as we know through the hunger games history is basically they once the war ended and they were like defective and the rebels found out about them they released all the jabber jays hoping they would just die out in nature but they ended up mating with local mockingbirds which they created the new species of the mockingjay so since the peacekeepers are trying to recapture them because the capital's doing more experiments on them he starts to really kind of learn about jabber jays and mocking jays and throughout the rest of this book we get to just hear how much Coriolanus hates the mocking jays and it's because to him like they can't be controlled and he literally describes the mocking jays as being unnatural he's like these are unnatural they should be killed when it's just ironic because they were literally created in nature with no human interference. Like, it was literally, like, this human-made, like, creation mating with just a natural occurring bird, and they made this new species naturally. So, like, it's just, I thought it was funny that he's like, they're they're just unnatural. Like, I'm like, they're not unnatural. You're just mad because you can't control them, and everything is about control to you. But... Also, like, it's rich to call them unnatural because the Jabberjays literally were not natural. And he describes the Jabberjays as being, he's like, well, I can see the use of them because they're useful. Like, you can use them. Like, so it's like, it's only, again, he only wants things that he can control. But he also, just like, again, with the capital, like, he also just wants to, he's always talking about how great the capital is. And this is something that him and 
Lucy Gray, like, kind of subtly, like, butt heads about. But he just ultimately, like, never wants to admit that the reason things are the way they are in Panem is because of the capital. The capital is, like, the catalyst, the cause of all of the conflict. Like, if the capital hadn't tried to control the districts, there never would have been an uprising and a war because the re- the districts would have never had a reason to fight back because if they weren't if they weren't being oppressed they wouldn't have a reason to fight the oppression like you know totally so but like he can't seem to see that and like that's a whole thing like which i'm sure maybe we can talk about in a little bit when we talk a little bit more about Dr. Gall at the end especially like just this her whole idea and that Coriolanus is kind of subscribing to her idea that humans are naturally just like inherently violent and like they keep describing humans as like animals and that there's just a fight for survival and everyone will just kill each other if there's not this control the capital overseeing everyone and it's just like no that's not the case at all but we'll get into that a little in a little bit yeah back to the mockingjays like he the first times he sees them fly before he even knows anything about them he's like i immediately disliked them and i was like they're birds like why do you have such like he has an instinctive hatred for them and particularly like you said he hates them because they show the weakness of the capital because like you said he likes jabberjays because they're controllable mockingjays prove that capital technology can be thwarted or can be adapted and that there are things that happen outside of the capital's control. So Mockingjays are like quite the living embodiment of things that Coriolanus hates. And I should have mentioned this earlier. I did notice this as soon as he got to 12, but I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but district 12 is on the Eastern seaboard of the United States in the Apple in the basically along the Appalachian mountain range. So that is the, like coast from kind of it kind of goes up from North Carolina up to Maine basically like along Appalachia and I'm originally from DC and Asia and I live in New York now so we really live like in what would be district 12 and snow hates the humidity he's like every I'm always so damp and there are so many bugs and I was just like well that's one thing Collins really got right about district 12 is how humid it gets in the summer i just thought it was funny because i noticed it a lot i mean yeah they he constantly talks that he's just like totally soaked like he gets a heat rash and the doctors at the clinic are like well make sure you keep it dry and he's like that's a funny joke i haven't been dry since i've been here and like yeah i it's obviously summer right now and we're up here we're up here in the heat and humidity and i cannot imagine having to go through this without air conditioning like there's no way i would have died i would have died back then i would have never made it well (laughs) luckily we don't have to yes so and then another moment that we get during this period of just love is that they all go to the lake so Coralinus, janus and the whole covey go to go to the lake the lake that we know that katniss goes to multiple times with gail and the one with the house nearby so it's that lake the the one lake the lake the one where katniss learns to swim unlike everyone else and where she meets twill and bonnie bonnie yeah the one that she went to with her dad the one lake in district 12 well it's outside Outside of district 12. 12 yeah and before they head out to go hike to this lake, we hear that Barb Azor, which is one of the, a girl who's part of the covey, like one of the cousins or something, we hear that she's seeing a gal down the road. They've just started seeing each other. And I just wrote it down because I was like, oh my gosh, there's a queer character. I mean, it was just kind of thrown in there. Like, I don't think that character, Barb Azor, I don't even think she speaks Maybe like a couple times in the whole book. But I caught that and I was like, there's your queer character. Like, just thrown into the mix. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was like, wait, we have a queer character. And the Covey, of course, like, it's perfectly normal. Granted, Coriolanus also doesn't say anything about it. But um, it was was there. Yes. But so they, yeah, so they go to the lake without Barb 
because obviously she's with her gal. Yes, and then at the lake, they also, they pick up the Katniss roots, which are like the tubers with the like kind of potato-y things, I guess. And this time when I was reading it, I was kind of confused because we're, was it saying that like Lucy Gray named them Katniss or like? I didn't know. It didn't sound like she named them Katniss to me, but it sounded like, like there was a biological name and then there was like the preferred name. And she just like, was like, I just prefer the name Katniss though. It could have been, I wasn't sure myself. I wrote that down too. I was like, did she name them Katniss or? Yeah, the line of the book, she goes like, oh, we're going to get the tubers or whatever. And she's like, but I like I like the name Katniss better. But it wasn't kind of like, it was kind of like, did she just come up with that on the top of her head? Or like, was this something that she like knew? I, I did think like it was kind of unclear. It was phrased weirdly where like it could have been that she literally made up the name. Yeah, so I don't know. Suzanne Collins is listening to this podcast. That would be a great question to answer. Okay. It looks to me like it's a real name. Like, this is an actual type of plant. And... It's called Katniss. I mean, that would make way more sense. I just... It was how Lucy Gray, like, how her dialogue was written. It did... It almost sounded like... She it wasn't clear if she was like just saying like oh I just like you said I prefer the like prettier like common name as opposed to like a biological name or if she was like we should call them this like she just made it up yeah I think that it looks to me I'm looking this up as we speak right now it does look like it has a true Latin name it's I think it's it's we it's often called duck potato swamp potato arrowhead which I've, because the leaves are shaped like arrowheads, or Katniss. It's most native to South Central North America, though there are some forms of it in Europe, Africa, and Asia, so the whole world. Okay. And uh, I was like, this article is really, oh, well, the, the genus is Sagittaria, and there's about 30 species of aquatic plants, and Katniss is one of them, and it's Sagittaria, Sorry, I'm butchering this Latin. Sagittaria sagittifolia is the genus and species. So it's a real thing. Katniss is just one of the names, and it looks like Lucy Gray just chose Katniss over swamp potato because obviously Katniss sounds much better than swamp potato. (laughs) I mean, imagine also because, like, Katniss versus Primrose. Like, Katniss was named after a swamp potato, (laughs) and Primrose was named after a flower. I mean, kind of speaks to their personalities. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely one of those things where the name was predictive of who they became. Yeah, so... And her dad, yeah, given her, like, life practical skills, whereas Prim, they were just like, look how pretty you can be. Well, Prim was Prim was much younger when he died, so... Yeah, it's true. Also, primroses have medicinal uses, too, so... Anyway, back to this story. Then Lucy Gray and Corio fight and this is what I was talking about before where they kind of butt heads about capital versus the districts and again this is where to me snow ultimately just sees the capital like as god like people wouldn't be able to function peacefully without it and lucy gray like specifically says she's like well people obviously survived before the capital existed so i'm sure they're going to survive in the future without it like, they have this whole thing of, you know, like, it is just kind of like, again, he just can't acknowledge that if the capital would just leave the districts alone, there would be no reason for there to be fighting, you know, but the capital has to have control. They want power. I mean, that's how all wars and things start. Totally. And I think she even says something along the lines of like, I didn't kill people until I was in the Hunger Games. Maybe not in this exact conversation, but she's like, it's because I was put in a situation like that where I had to kill people. Like, Oh, yeah. I, I have the, I think I have, I don't know if it's the exact same quote, but I, I wrote down a quote that I think summed it up perfectly. Lucy Gray says something about, like, basically how the districts only do these things because the capital, like, has put them in this situation, which is what we talked about in our last episode when Coriolanus is thrown into the arena and he ends up having 
to kill Bobbin and how Dr. Gall is like, see, like that's humanity stripped down. And he's like, I don't think I would have killed anyone if I wasn't put in that situation. And yet, even though he literally experienced, he experienced that feeling of being put into a hostile situation and having to make hard decisions, he can't acknowledge that is what is happening to the districts. Even though he went through it himself. Like we said, he likes to make exceptions for the capital. Like, I mean, his logic just really doesn't make very much sense. Like, she's like, people existed before the capital and will exist after it. And he's like, I don't think that makes any sense. And it's like, Coriolanus, you literally just drove across the country and you saw that the world existed before the capital. Well, also, because his whole thing is like, because this is even when they talk about like later on when Sejanus talks about like running away and he's like, I don't know what they're expecting. Like, as if the capital is the only good thing that's ever existed. Like, even if, like, because, too, this is supposed to take place, like, in the future. Like, if the, whatever the remnants of, if we're saying, like, North America were, like, just like with anything, like, dynasties rise and fall. Which, I mean, as we see, the capital rose and they eventually fell. That's just human nature because, again... Humans do have a tendency to fight over control and power and stuff like that when it's just like, if you just left each other alone, it wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, totally. And so this is what they fight about. And I think it's also when they go to the lake, I think that's when she, Lucy Gray, does sing the Deep in the Meadow song for Maud Ivory. Yes, which when I read it this time, I was definitely like, oh my God, it's Rue's song. The song that Katniss sang to Rue as she was dying in the arena, which I don't think the first time I read it, I didn't remember that because again, it had been, Mm -hmm. what, a decade since I read the series. So I didn't catch that, but I definitely did this time. Yeah, I definitely did, but I don't know if I would have necessarily caught it if I without having read The Hunger Games right now Because, like, obviously, like, I knew the Hanging Tree song <laughs> because, again, it was, a, it was a bop. They made it into an EDM song on the radio about people going to the Hanging Tree. That is literally, what, the mess of thing. Like... Also, like, I just... Yeah, there's something catchy about, like, Jennifer Lawrence's voice saying, are you, are you coming to the tree? And also, like, the way that they wrote it as a song was not how I, when I first read it as a song, um, I read it as, I read the meter differently than what they did in the movie. So when they, when when I got to the scene in the movie, I was like, why is she singing it wrong? But I was like, oh wait, this is just the meter that I made up in my brain. As in, you know the book better (laughs) than, than... The author putting. I mean, I actually liked what they ended up doing. I liked what they ended up doing. They added a bit of a, what's that word, syncopation Mm -hmm. to the end that came here at mid. Like I would have said midnight at the hanging tree, but they did mid night at the hanging tree. Like they sped up. I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm gonna have to listen to the song because, like, I don't, I don't know it well enough to know catch exactly what you're talking about. Well, anyway, as soon as you hear it, there'll be a syncret, there'll be a syncopation that's super obvious to you. But like as a child, I just read it in even four four meter, and so then when I saw it in the movie, I was like, "What are they doing? They've ruined my song." Like I feel like when I read whenever there's like a song or something like written, I just read it. Like again, I don't think about. What could the melody be? Because that sounds way too complicated. Unless, like, now when we were reading it, I'm, like, singing it in my head, like, how they did in the movie, because you've, it's already been set up. But I wouldn't be able to... I'm no composer. I'm not going to come with up with the, what the melody is. Okay, well, anyway. But, yes, it was Rue's song, and I'm glad that we got it. And if you've thought that we've been rushing through this episode already, it's about to get crazy, so Coriolanus, so they're back another day. They're at the Hob, and uh, Billy Tope, who is Lucy Gray's former lover, who's now dating Mayfair, who is the daughter of the mayor, he's like wants to rebel, blah blah blah, and they're all in the green room before, like during the concert, and <laughs> basically it leads to Coriolanus shooting. Mayfair, Mayfair Lip, who is the daughter of the mayor. And, like, so now he's killed her. 
And Can I just butt in really quick please. and say that Mayfair is probably the worst character of the whole Hunger Games series, I think. She seems just like such yeah, she, a little terrible person. Like She's a word that we wouldn't use on this podcast. She is just, I mean, also I just don't, it's like the like privileged like little girl trying to like get in with like the the like more like poor people yeah it's like she's like like hanging out with the edgy kids but just for like the status of it just to be to be edgy herself but like but like she's still gonna go home to like her rich mayor's daughter to daddy yeah it I don't know. Also, like, I think the fact out that of she, all of this, she got what she deserved. Well, also the <laughs> fact that she, like, has Lucy, her dad, like, literally lie and say Lucy Gray was reaped is, like, pretty horrible. Like, that's really terrible. Yeah. Like, it doesn't necessarily, like, um, probably wasn't even her name that got drawn out of the reaping bowl, but it's more, like, the idea that she would convince her dad to literally lie, like, and sentence this girl to death is pretty terrible. But anyway, Coriolanus kills her. And he, like, you know, they cover it up, basically. And then Sejanus, he tells Coriolanus that he's going to defect. And Coriolanus, you know, in his little obsession with the Jabberjays, he records the whole conversation with Sejanus, and he sends it to Dr. Gall in the Capitol so that now the Capitol knows that Sejanus is going to defect, and they literally have audio proof of it. Which, this is, again, where I feel like he really starts to his, like, mental like justification because even when he sends the jabber jay to the capital because at first when he first does it he's like oh i should go and erase it like i don't know what's gonna happen to him and they're like no he'll get a slap on the wrist like his father will just you know build a new something or whatever and he doesn't really fully think through of what he's just recorded like so janus has literally said that he's going to commit treason so like and as they just saw, like, they hang people for that. So he's not thinking it through fully. And if he is, he's justifying his reasoning, being like, well, you know, so James did this to himself, and I'm just, you know, doing what's right, basically. And he also does this with his murder of Mayfair. He has the audacity to say that it was self-defense because she had the power to get him hanged because... Basically, what she walked in on was this meeting of Billy Tope, Sejanus, and Lil's brother. The Lil is the lover of Arla who got hung, and she's being held and is supposed to be getting hung too. And her brother wants to try to break her out, and they want to run away. They want to escape District 12 and go into the woods and head north. And... Basically, like, Coriolanus and Lucy Gray just end up happening across this meeting, and, like, they're not involved. And obviously, if Mayfair goes and, like, tells on them, they're all going to be in trouble. So that's why he sees it as self-defense. But no, he just murdered this girl. Like, but okay. And that's where it's just, like, we're really starting to see his tendency to kind of defend his cruelty as justified if it benefits, if it's going to benefit him. And then, you know, pretty quickly after that, Sejanus is hung for treason, which I remember I was definitely, like, shocked by this the first time I read it. I just, like, didn't realize that that was what was going to happen. I mean, once all this happened, I mean, I knew something bad was going to happen because him being like, oh, he's going to get a slap on the wrist. And then he even thinks about it, like, when they're, like, coming out, they're like, because he goes to try to call uh, Strabo Plinth. So Janice's father, and they're like, oh, peacekeepers can't make phone calls until... So the, I think they says you can only make a phone call once every six months, but you have to put in six months first or something. So, like, there's no phone calls, and everything else is by mail, and obviously this is all happening way too fast. So he's he gets Sejanus killed. He basically killed him. And then right after his death, he's immediately, you know, trying to justify it that, you know, Sejanus was on the wrong path. I was just doing what was right for the capital. And it was almost like, you know, Sejanus deserved it because he just wanted to. And also, like, all, like, Sejanus's treasonous actions were that he was going, he was going to help the, like, rebels break out Lil, but he was doing that because he wanted to escape District 12. As we've seen, he's not out, cut out for capital life. He's not cut out for peacekeeper life. Like, he just wanted to escape. 
So I think it was pretty, it was a pretty sad death for him. Yeah, it's definitely not what I saw coming because like I said at the end of last episode, I figured that Coriolanus himself would kill him slash orchestrate it. But I guess he, like we said, he kind of is, he's entirely responsible for Sejanus' death. So it, you know, I just was expecting Coriolanus to like, I don't know, crucify him or something crazy because Coriolanus hates him so much. And but yeah. he's much more subtle. Than yes. That. I mean, it, in both cases, I mean, he describes it of just like when he dropped the handkerchief in the thing of snakes for Lucy Gray. He says that his hands like acted without him thinking about it when he presses the jabber day, the jabber jay to record. So Jane is talking. So it's almost like a subconscious thing that like he's like, I have to protect myself. Like, it totally is. And he's like, like you said, he's like justifying Sejanus's death because of Sejanus's naivete. He's like, well, he was weak. Well, he didn't really understand the world. Well, he was going to betray the capital. Like, he just thinks that because Sejanus was even remotely critical of the capital, like, he's probably better off dead anyway. And then Sejanus and Lucy Gray, though, they do decide that they're going to run away now, which is rich because, like, he's like, I can Sejanus... I can summon Sejanus, like I can justify Sejanus being hung for treason, but I'm just going to run away myself now. And that's totally fine because he doesn't know where the gun that he used to kill Mayfair is. And because Spruce, who's the, who is Lil's brother, he's died in custody. He has no idea of knowing where the gun is. So there's no way of knowing it was disposed of properly. So he's like, if the gun comes out, then I could be in trouble. Okay, which personally, I'm like, that logic, so because basically he's like, the gun could be found, I could, you know, lose my spot in officer school and, like, you know, be put up for murder. And I'm like, personally, I don't think that logic is that great because I'm like, you still are, like, a capital kid. Like, I know you're a peacekeeper now, but I think that if you killed, like, some random kid in District 12, I don't really think it would matter that much if it came out that you killed them eventually. Like, you would probably get a slap on the wrist, but you probably wouldn't be, like, executed for if you were in officer school just after like killing this one like nobody in district 12 but what do you think i mean it was the mayor's daughter i think it's just i think he's more on edge because of what happened with the hunger games and how he was riding on the top of the world thinking he'd won everything and when that other shoe dropped everything he'd ever known got taken had gotten taken away and what he's more worried about is i mean even though, also, at this point, like, he doesn't think anyone's backing him up. Like, we obviously find out in the end that Dr. Gall was, you know, on his side the whole time, but he doesn't know that now. So to him, he's got no one to fight for him. So if it did come out, he would be facing murder charges, which in District 12, for murder, you get hung, and he wants to avoid that. So, like, I understand him thinking to run away that he has no choice because I think he even says it's just like he even says like when they come and they offer him the thing of he passed the test he can go to officer school in district two he's like how disappointing like I have all these opportunities like, but it's not worth it because if that other shoe drops they're gonna kill me like and I don't want to die basically yeah yeah I guess you're right but I was just like Honestly, it's just a little ridiculous that like he literally was like Sejanus deserves to hang for defecting but I mean again he it considers exceptions for himself. So he's like, it's perfectly reasonable for me to run away. Well, when he, when, when he first gets back to his bunk or whatever, to his room after Sejanus is hanging, he's like lying there, like freaking out saying like, they're coming for me next. They're coming for me next. And because obviously like he, mur like he's like, everything's going to come out. Like they're going to come get me. But, he eventually, like you said, he justified himself, well, I can run away. I'll just run away with Lucy Gray because she's going to want to run too. Like, it'll be okay. Like, you know, that that's why, like, it's again, he justifies everything in his brain. Like, he gets to that point. Yeah. So they do start to run away, and immediately Coriolanus is like, I don't like being outside. Like, he, like as soon as they, like, leave District 12, he's like, this is going to be a lot of work. I can't cook. I can't hunt. Like, he's like, I don't even know how we're going to do this. Like, again, he's not really thought about it. And then, like you said, he's extra bitter because he just got offered this spot in the military academy. And 
And this is one of those moments that like truly summarizes Snow really well because so they're trudging along and I pulled out a quote of like his mindset. He's like, what was there to aspire to when wealth, fame, and power had expired? So basically he's literally like, now that there's nothing going for me in the future, like why would I even keep living like this menial existence, like running around in the woods? But it all turns around because they get to the house at the lake again and they find the guns and I texted Asia. I predicted this. I texted Asia right away. I was like, oh my God, he found the guns. He's going to kill Lucy Gray and go to officer training. Yes, you did text me and you were right because yes, they find the guns and this is where I pulled Lucy Gray's quote when they're kind of talking about things like as they enter the house. Mm-hmm. And she kind of puts it perfectly, like I said, between, like, the relationship between the capital and the districts. And she's like, people, she says, and I quote, people aren't so bad, really. It's what the world does to them. Like us in the arena. We did things in there we'd never have considered if they just left us alone. Which, again, why this is so ridiculous is because Coriolanus was literally put into this situation. He had to go into the arena for a few minutes, and he literally was put in that situation where he had to do bad things. Because the world did something to him. And yet he cannot relate to this and realize that the Hunger Games are violent because you force children into an arena where they have to kill each other. Or you're going to kill them. Like, you know? So, I just thought that that quote, like, kind of put it, summed it all up nicely. I agree. But this is when, so... They find the guns, and Coriolanus is like, oh, blah, blah, and she's like, oh, I'm going to go pick some Katniss for us, because they, like, went fishing, and they're, like, kind of making a little meal, and so she leaves, and this is when Snow's, like, whole subconscious kind of fully starts to take over, and he starts to, like, think bad things about Lucy Gray, because once he finds the guns, he's like, that's it. There's nothing holding me back from going back and going to officer training in District 2, because I'll destroy the guns, and I'll be good to go, and then he's like, but wait, there's Lucy Gray. And at first he's like, well, Lucy Gray will, she'll never say a word. She'll never say anything to me. But then he's kind of like, but she's a liar. She's a terrible person. And he even has the audacity to say that, you know, you know, she poisoned that poor little wovey in the arena. Like, what a terrible move. And I was like, Coriolanus, it was your idea to poison people. You're the one who gave her the compact. So how are you turning around when that was literally your idea and It was the Hunger Games, and you wanted her to live, which meant she was probably going to have to kill people. Anyway, so again, that just goes to, like, him choosing his words. And so he's kind of, like, starting to talk himself into, like, Lucy Gray can't be trusted. Like, I I can only trust myself, and I can't trust her with that information. And even talks about, like, what if she gets captured and tortured, and they force the information out of her. Like, he's like, there's nothing, like, I have to kill her. Like, I have to get rid of her. She's, like, the final string that has to be tied up. Yeah. Yeah, this is where, like, I thought Collins' writing was really excellent because as soon as he saw that path to status, as soon as he found those guns, his brain started to create a permission structure to kill Lucy Gray. Like, and so then he goes into the woods and he shoots a bunch and he probably did kill her. Like, he sprays guns like bullets all the way around him so uh, after she did like the singing trick so he probably did actually kill her yes which we don't find out we don't know what happens to lucy gray because coriolanus gets bitten by a snake because so he had given her like an orange scarf and so it kind of seems like she dropped the scarf to try to kind of lead him in a certain direction and then he gets bitten by the snake and he thinks that she set a trap for him But again, we don't know if that's what actually happened or if that just happened to happen because, you know, maybe karma since you're a bad person. But anyway, he gets bitten by this snake and so he doesn't get to check to see if he actually killed her. He doesn't have time to find her because he starts freaking out and he doesn't know if it's a venomous snake. So he's like, I have to get back to District 12. I have to get back to the peacekeeper camp to go to the clinic because I don't want to die. Yeah. And I... That's basically the only reason, because I figured for his personality that he would have checked on her, like, because he, you know, the reason he's killing her is to tie up loose ends, so it probably wouldn't make a lot of sense for him to leave her out there just so that she could be a loose end, but he gets, he panics himself about the snake, and 
to be fair, I'd be the same way because I hate snakes. I would be, I mean, I would have fainted if I saw the snake. So actually we wouldn't be in the same problem because if there, <laughs> if there's no way a snake could bite me and I'd be worried about the venom because if I saw a snake, I would pass out. So, but if I was in his situation, like he stresses himself out so much and then it turns out the snake wasn't even venomous, but whatever, he makes it back to 12. Yeah, well, because Charles originally, when we talked about this, was like, that just doesn't make sense. Like, that's not in his personality. And I was like, first of all, for someone who's so afraid of snakes, I think if you got bitten by a snake, you'd be freaking out. And also for Coriolanus, like, he's a prissy little capital boy who's never really been in nature. He has no idea. He has no survival skills. Like, he doesn't know anything about snakes or what kind of snakes are venomous. So he's like, I'm not risking it. He's like, when, now, like you said, he's got this path for success and also, I mean, once he gets back, like, the fact is, whether he shot her or not, there's no way Lucy Gray's coming back to District 12. Like, she already, the reason she wanted to run away is because the mayor thinks that she killed his daughter, Mayfair. So she's like, she's not going to come back because the mayor's just going to find a way to kill her. And, like, so even if she... And he probably got her anyway. And if he, so if he didn't get her, she'll probably just stay in the woods until she dies of natural causes or he probably like he shot a lot in the woods. It's unlikely that she didn't get shot and she's going to bleed out. So he goes, he makes it back to District 12. Like we said, we find out the snake wasn't venomous. So he goes back to his room. And since they went um, fishing and stuff, he got all like he got or it started raining while all this was happening. No, he goes to drop the guns. He goes into the oh, lake. Oh, yeah, he to goes drop, into the, the lake to have the guns sink to the bottom of the lake. So he's all wet. And I just wrote down something that I didn't remember from before. But the only thing that survives, like, because he had put some things, some personal belongings, like, in his pockets because he thought he was running away forever. The only thing that survives is his father's compass. He had to throw out his little, like, thing of his mother's powder, the, like, rose-scented powder, and then he had some family photos with him. And this is just, like, a perfect, like, a perfect way of, like, symbolizing how, you know, the only thing that's left of him now is, like, the coldness of his father. He's lost everything from his mother. He's lost any, you know, need for family. He's just about, I'm going to be successful in the capital, and I'm going to have personal success no matter who I have to, like, take down who's in my way. Yeah, I caught that too. It was pretty hefty symbolism. But, you know, nice to have it there because it is, it, you know, it's nice writing. And then Snow does sort of land on top because on his way to District 2, he actually gets pulled down at the Capitol. And Dr. Gall is like, so you didn't actually think I sent you there to waste you on the peacekeepers. She's like, I invested all this time in you. You're going to university. You're going to study directly under me. And I was like, wow, she literally used the exact word I used in the episode last week that she invested in him because he had potential to be evil. And she was like, I see it and I like it. And they erased all the copies of the 10th Hunger Games. Not that they would have, not that Peta and Katniss would have looked at it during Catching Fire, but they say they don't know anything about the other Victor from District 12 because there were no replays of this Hunger Games. And... So he goes to university with Dr. Gall. Like, he's basically just, like, you know, back to being a little prince. And he's ingratiated himself so much with the plinths that they've made him their heir. So now he's rich, but he's going to keep the snow name. So he's going to get all their money when they die because they need to, you know, have someone to take care of. So he gets to stay in the snow penthouse. He gets all of Sejanus's money, even though he's the one who killed Sejanus. And he then becomes the architect for a couple more features of the games. So one, he's already designed the sponsor program and the betting pools. He also designs the Victor, Victor's Village, the prize money for the Victors, and the district gifts. So if you remember from Catching Fire, everyone in District 12 for a year gets, like, food delivered to them once a month, which is... Yeah, extra food. Which is... Huge for the Huge starving districts. Huge for the starving districts. So he's basically created a better incentive structure to get people to watch the games. They do obviously make them... Well, and people encourage people to volunteer as well. Exactly. Like, he's basically... Obviously, they're going to start making parts of it mandatory, and they're going to show it in schools and stuff like that. But he's created other incentives for people to be invested in their tributes 
rap because, as we said, the games, as they first started, were kind of just dumb. Like, so he's actually made the games even more cruel in his way of designing them to be more of entertainment. And that was all him when he was in, like, when he was, like, 19. Yep. And then in our final scene of the book, we finally find out why Dean Highbottom hates Coriolanus and his father so much. She just hates the snows because Crassus Snow, which is Coriolanus' father, basically got him drunk, got Highbottom drunk and kind of helped him and like helped him come up with the Hunger Games and kind of egged him on to like how cruel he could get with it. And he was like, it's a joke. It's a joke. Like this isn't for real. And he went behind his back and gave it to Dr. Gall. And of course, then Dr. Gall created into the real Hunger Games. And that's why High Bottom is constantly drugging himself up because he didn't actually want to create the Hunger Games. Like it was a joke, like, or not, like, he, he, it was theoretical, which he says at the beginning, like, he's like, it was all theoretical, it was never supposed to actually be put into practice, so obviously, now he feels this innate guilt, he'll feel this guilt forever for creating this terrible thing and costing all these children their lives, but we find out- He's not gonna feel the guilt for much longer. He's not gonna feel the guilt for much longer because (laughs) Coriolanus, he comes with Sejanus's, like, things, and Sejanus had- been prescribed some medicine for like everything he was going through and one of his medicine was morphling which is you know the thing that high bottoms kind of addicted to and basically snow puts poison in the morphling and it's like half full and he throws it in dean high bottoms trash knowing that he's gonna pick it up and use it so dean high bottom is snow's first poisoning victim which we obviously learn later mockingjay that how uh, Phoenix says how he's poisoned a lot of, like, competitors throughout his entire political career. Well, also, just proof that he does it better than Lucy Gray. So in the arena when Lucy Gray uses the rat poison, it's kind of visible because, like, there's, this, like, a white mist coming out of her, the Wobie's mouth afterwards. So it's kind of visible that it wasn't, like, natural. But Morphling is white. It's, like, or it's clear, right? So it's like, but it's like cloudy, I think. Maybe I'm just imagining this. But basically, there's something where he's like, maybe they say it's clear. I have no idea. I can't idea, remember, but, but what, I thought that there was a line. Poison? He uses the rat poison again, and he made it, like, it kind of sounded like he chose it with the morphling so that it would, like, be concealed better. No, I think know. he just chose it with the morphling because he knew that Dean Highbottom, he says Dean Highbottom wouldn't be able no, to he resist. he chose the rat poison. He chooses the rat poison because he knows it would, like, be concealed. But maybe I'm just imagining this line. Yeah, I think you're... I, I finished you're reading ma- a week ago. I think so. you're imagining it. Okay, well, either way, he is the first poison kill, and yeah, that's where we finish. That's it for the book. So, Charles, like, what did you think overall of the prequel, reading it for the first time? I just think it's a real testament to Suzanne Collins' writing and her vision. I think that it was really good i enjoyed it i don't want them to make a movie out of it i don't think it would make a very good movie no because it doesn't like i mean we obviously get a resolution at the end but it doesn't really have the effect of a movie also like because it you know we kind of leave with Coriolanus like on top but like his whole life ahead of him so it doesn't it just wouldn't tie in that well as a movie i think so I'm not sure there are plans to make it into a movie, but I don't think they should. And I uh, I liked, actually, I was thinking about this, I liked that we didn't get the fight between him and Tigress that separates them. Because I think that might have been too neat. Like I said, that she becomes a stylist eventually, and then she gets separated from Coriolanus. And we know that there are 65 years between when this book takes place and the uprising in Mockingjay. So... We don't know exactly what the fallout was, but I'm glad that we didn't get that necessarily because that would have, one, undercut the fact that Tigress is supposed to be a stylist at some point, and two, it just would have been too, like, it would have been almost too perfect. Like, the evil arc would have been too perfect. Like, he's going to have enemies throughout the rest of the war, like, the next 65 years. Yeah, I think it also makes more sense that it's, like, as he gains more power, 
he slowly has no need for anyone else. And so he just slowly starts cutting off more and more people, you know? Totally. And I think that she also does it, like, and we already saw that there was tension. Like, she's like, if some if some girl has to be, like, a prostitute to, like, make a living, we really shouldn't judge her. And Coriolanus is like, I think we should definitely judge her. Like, we saw them, like, there were disagreements in values between them. Well, and also her views on the Hunger Games. She's like, the Hunger Games are wrong. And obviously Snow is fully embracing the Hunger Games and is like, yeah, let's do the Hunger Games. This is perfect. So, like, that's a huge thing that, like, they'll never agree on. So, like, he's definitely thought about it. Like, we've seen that there's the potential for the rift, but we didn't get it. So I thought that, again, I just thought it was good writing. Though the one thing I am, the one missing end I am disappointed about is we never found out what happened with the rabbit mutt that D- Dr. Gall had. Like, like I want to know what happened with the rabbit mutt because it was such a big part of the first half. I think I think it's just, just one of her pets, one of her Gross. experiments. I didn't like that, but... <laughs> Anything else? No, what about you? Well, we are officially at the end of the Hunger Games, and I'd like to say Charles never gave me any lessons on the whistle, so I don't think it has improved. Do you want to go for it? I guess. Are you going to try, or should I give it to you first so you can practice Maybe you should give it to me first. That was was four of the same pitch. Well, I definitely can't do different pitches. And like I said, Charles did not give me any instruction. Okay, she did not ask me to help. um, We didn't actually. If we can, we can play back the first episode where Charles said, "I will teach you." I didn't didn't say I had to ask. He said, "How many times have you come into my room since then?" And you didn't. And you never offered, so I thought it was off the table. Terrible. Oh, did you know? Okay. Terrible teacher. Wait, let me start over. Start lower. Ah! (laughs) They're all the same. (laughs) The first two were good. They were four different pitches, that's true. That's as close as we're going to get. I think so. Wow. Well. Anyway, Charles will always be the professional whistler. I will not. But that is What a useful skill. I could be Katniss. I just did that three finger salute. I think you you'd have to podcast. I think you'd have to learn how to be good at archery first. I've been to an archery range before, but I wasn't very good. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> that is the end of the Hunger Games for us. So next week we'll be starting our next series, which is going to be The Giver Quartet by Lois Lowry. And we're starting the first book next week, The Giver. So if you're going to read along with us, we're going to be reading chapters 1 through 12. Fantastic. I'm really excited to get into The Giver. It's been so long since I read it. And so I'm hoping it's not quite as dark. I, I mean, I know it's dark. But I don't think, if I remember correctly, I don't think we're going to get quite as much like abject violence as we have gotten in the Hunger Games series. So I think there will be some, but I don't think it's going to be quite as like teenagers like hacking each other off of the blunt, blunt axe. So hopefully we'll be dealing with dark themes for sure because we are sticking with dystopia. But I think it'll be a little less mute. I think it'll be a little muted in like the actual like depictions of violence crossing our fingers. And if you have any predictions or theories or questions or want to talk about any of the series we've discussed, remember you can always stay in touch with direct with us directly on the Nerd Party website. You just head over to nerdparty.com slash contact and you select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network directly on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at the Nerd Party or on Facebook.com slash the Nerd Party. To find me, I'm at C E Sheeland on Twitter and at Seashells on Instagram. And I'm at Asia Boney on Twitter and at Asia.Boney on Instagram. 
If you enjoyed this, make sure that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yes, hit that subscribe. Have a good one. and We will see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.